Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see some of you and everybody else who's joining us online. Glad to have you with us as well this morning. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday. This is a very strange, strange thing. Yesterday we were talking about it and it's like, wow, tomorrow's Palm Sunday and no church service and no no palm branches to hand out or any of that stuff. It's very odd, but uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about that today, and, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be celebrating that in our hearts for sure. Next week, of course, being uh, Easter Sunday, um, and uh, if you guys want to start planning ahead for that, I would like to share communion with you uh, online. So we'll, we'll talk about that, and, and maybe we can even get ready at the beginning of service next week, but I would like to do that. We'll see how that turns out, but uh, just because we can't be together physically, um, we are together in spirit, right? We are together in heart. So got a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, for those uh, wishing uh, to still pay their tithes uh, and offerings, those of you who are members of our church, um, you can send checks to the church address or you can donate through our website. <clears throat> those of you who are able and the Lord puts it on your heart, we are working on the website. We have it back up and running. We have it under, um, uh, we have a new domain, and it's now a secured site, uh, and we're working on getting all the kinks worked out of it so that we can have a seamless process there with streaming our videos. Uh, Also, a reminder, Tuesday at 7 p.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Tuesday night at 7 p.m. is our women's Bible study, and that's via Zoom. Um, The information, I believe, will be on Facebook on how to log on to that. Uh, and then the same thing for Wednesday, and that's, of course, just a Bible study for everybody at 7 p.m. And uh, also, Dad is going to start uh, blogging, uh, putting some blogs up on our, our website, just some encouragement for everybody during this time, and, and uh, he may even let me throw a few things on there. We'll see how that works out. Um, and also, we want you guys to remember, everybody who's listening to this, everybody who is, who is at home watching this right now, remember that uh, nothing has changed as far as Dad and I are concerned and as far as uh, the calling that we have to serve you guys. So if there's anything that you guys need, if you need to talk to someone, if you need to pray, uh, if you need us to make sure you have something or get something to you, please don't hesitate to call us anytime. Uh, we, are, we are available to, to everybody, not just the people that attend our church either. If you're out there and you're listening to this and, and at some point in time you need to talk to someone, you need help with something, you need prayer, do not hesitate, please, to get a hold of us. Uh, Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you, Lord God, for your great and awesome and mighty power, Father. We pray that you would give us, uh, that you would increase our faith, Lord, during this difficult time that we find ourselves in, and allow us to find more of you in our lives, Lord, through this, that we would allow the difficulty and the trial of this time, Lord, to to draw us closer to yourself, uh, Lord, and and to uh, begin to focus more on the, the plan that you have uh, for our lives, Lord, rather than maybe the plans that we have for ourselves. And to trust in you and to rest in you, Father. We pray that you would increase our faith. We pray that you'd be glorified today through our study of the Scripture and that you would have your way in this place, Lord, and uh, in the hearts of every single person who might be listening today, Father. So we love you and we praise you and we thank you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we are uh, continuing in the book of Numbers. And uh, we are going to be talking about the triumphal entry, and, and I don't think we can, we don't want to get out of today without talking about Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem uh, on the donkey, uh, proclaiming officially for the first time and the last time in his ministry, uh, his earthly ministry, proclaiming that he was indeed the Messiah and the King of Israel. Uh, but uh, we're going to begin in Numbers chapter 16, which is where we are in our, in our uh, systematic Bible study going through the scriptures. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1 starts like this. 
Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So this is a large group uh, amongst the people of influential people. This isn't just a ragtag group of, of men. This is a large and influential group of people. Uh, of course, Korah being the son of Ishar, it says the son of Kohath. The family of Kohath, remember, this is the family amongst the tribe of Levi. This is the family that was responsible for carrying all of the articles of the holiest place, the holy place and the most holy place within the tabernacle. These were the people who were responsible for carrying the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. They were responsible for carrying the menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, all of these things they were responsible for. And that would have given them, you've got to understand the culture and the time, that would have given them a place of great prominence amongst the people. They had influence. Uh, and not only that, but the 250 leaders, it says, of the congregation, men of renown, this is a large group, this is a large faction of people, and not just any people, influential people, people who were known, people who were listened to, who come to Moses at this point in time. They gathered together in verse 3 against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves. Now I want to, to just qualify that uh, in the language there when it says you take too much. It's not that they're saying, you know, hey, listen, you're doing too much, Moses. Let us help. That's, that's not what it, what it means. What it means is you presume too much. Moses, you think you have rights that you don't have. Moses, you think that you have authority over us that you don't have. That's what they're saying here to Moses and Aaron. You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Remember last week we talked about the fact that God had said to the children of Israel, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. It wasn't just one. He wanted all of the children of Israel... He wanted all of them to be representatives of his glory, to be representatives of his, of his kingdom. Just as every single Christian who's out there hearing the sound of my voice and every Christian throughout the world, God has called you to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just the guy or, who stands behind the pulpit preaching the word of God who's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's everyone who is in Christ, everyone who knows Christ, everyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. You are a royal priesthood, the Bible says, a holy nation. And so that's probably what they're referring to, that God had said that they were a kingdom of priests. All the people are holy. It's not just you, Moses. He says, why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So the idea here, the accusation that Korah and this band of people are, are making against Moses and Aaron is that they in some way or somehow are exalting themselves. They are seeking, the accusation is, to elevate themselves above the people, over the people, to be lords over them. <clears throat> now, here's Moses' reaction in verse 4. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And remember a couple chapters earlier, the Bible talks about the fact that Moses was, they have this strange verse where it says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. 
He was a super humble guy. God had taken Moses from a child up through Egypt at 40 years old. He was driven from Egypt, remember, out into the wilderness. And 40 years after that, when Moses is 80 and God finds him to use him to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, by that point in time, Moses was at the end of his own rope. He had no confidence in himself. He told God, please send somebody else. I can't even talk right. You know, Moses had no confidence in the flesh. All of his faith, all of his trust, everything that he did was based completely on his faith and his belief in God. So for someone to come to him and say, you want to seek to make yourself Lord over us, this was a heartbreaking thing to Moses. And it says that he fell on his face in verse 4. And he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him. That one who he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Now, the censers were, were the instruments of the priesthood that were used. You would put fire coals inside of them, and you would put insects in them, and, it was, and then you would wave it before the offerings of the Lord. It was significant. It signified the Spirit of God and also the prayers of the people. And so it was a priestly item. So he said, take censers, Korah, and all your company, everyone, put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. And then he says this, he kind of gives it back to Korah here, you take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. And what Moses is basically saying here is, is, is it's not me uh, who's overstepped his boundaries. It's not me who has presumed to be anything or to do anything. That's exactly what you guys are doing right now. Then Moses uh, uh, said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? Excuse me. So uh, to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you, are you seeking the priesthood also? So what Moses is saying here to, to Korah and these people is God has already chosen you. God has already taken you from amongst the people, and he is using you in the ministry within the tabernacle. He has chosen your family to be the ones to bear the ark. He has chosen your family to be the ones to carry the table of showbread, the menorah, all of these things. These articles from the actual tabernacle where the worship and the presence of, the, of, of holy God exists and ministers. He's chosen you for this great work, but that's not enough for you. That's not enough for you. No, you have to have the priesthood also is what he's saying here. It's a, sad, it's a sad statement. Verse 11, Therefore you and all your company are gathered together, notice, against the Lord. And it's interesting Moses' point of view here. This is how Moses sees it. You're not gathered here against me. You're gathered here against the Lord. Right? I didn't call myself. Right? Moses is saying, I didn't put myself into any position of authority over you. Anything that I have and anything that God has done through me is just that. It's from God. It's of God. So you find yourself here, Korah and this entire group of people, not standing against me, Moses says, not standing against my brother Aaron, the high priest. You're standing against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? You know, and Aaron's like, geez, <laughs> you know, well, who's Aaron? Aaron's just a guy. Why are you coming against him? 
And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. Now this, this is uh, an amazing statement here. Verse 13, they say this, is it a small thing, notice, that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us. Now, what are they referring to? Either they're referring to Egypt as being a land flowing with milk and honey. Either they're referring to the place of their bondage, the place that they were slaves, the place that they cried out to the Lord and they begged God, please, please send a deliverer. Please send someone to take us from this place. Either they're forgetting all of that and referring to Egypt as a land flowing with milk and honey, or they are referring to when they went to the promised land, remember, and sent the 12 spies in, and two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, this is the land God has given us. Let's go take it. But 10 of the spies brought a bad report. There's giants in the land. There's too many people. They're too powerful. We're not going to be able to overcome them. Remember, and the entire congregation of the children of Israel sided with the 10 spies who brought the bad report. They lost faith. They completely rejected God's promise and what God had told them to do. And because of that, God pronounced on them, this generation will not enter into the promised land. This generation will fall in the wilderness. Your children are the ones who are going to inherit the promised land. The very ones that you said would be devoured by the land, they're going to go into it. But this generation of unbelief is going to perish in the wilderness. So either they're referring to Egypt as the land flowing of milk and honey, or they're blaming Moses for the reason that they were not able to go into the land of Canaan that God had promised them. Even though that it was 100% their own unbelief. They wanted to stone Moses and they wanted to stone uh, Joshua and Caleb for saying, this is ours, let's go take it. And now they would blame that on Moses and put that on Moses. Either way, harsh, 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 harsh statement. Uh, and then it says, uh, and that you should keep acting like a prince over us. Again, claiming that Moses was seeking to be this sovereign over the people, even though Moses was the man who was always interceding on the people's behalf. When the people showed incredible unbelief and rebellion, and God had said, you know what, Moses, just stand aside. I'm going to smoke the entire congregation and start over with you. And Moses was this intercessor. He was, in, in a way, a picture of Jesus Christ, in the way that Jesus stands in the gap between you and I and the Father, and God the Father, he stands in the gap between us. He is the one that makes intercession on our behalf. Jesus, that's what he said, that's what he meant when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me because Jesus Christ is the one man. He is the one who was sent by God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world to be that perfect sacrifice for you and I to die on the cross for our sins. And not only that, but after he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, the Bible says that he sits at the right hand of the Father forever to make intercession on our behalf. Hebrews talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is our own high priest. Jesus Christ is your priest. It's no longer a man like Moses was that goes between us and God. We have Jesus Christ himself. 
That is what he does. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and when the devil makes accusations, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren that accuses us before the throne of God day and night. And Jesus Christ sits there to make intercession on our behalf. He sits there, and when an accusation is brought against you, of those of you who are in Jesus Christ, he says, no, 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 but they have put their faith and their trust and their hope in me, and they believe in me, and because of that, they're justified. It's not because of their works. It's not because of the good things that they have done. It's not because of the bad things that they have done. It's because they have put their faith and hope and trust in me, and I stand in the gap for them. That's who Jesus Christ is for you and I. And that's the kind of man that Moses was. That's why Moses was a great man, because he was this man who was willing to stand in the gap between God and the people. He was willing to go to God, and rather than say, hey, you know what, God? These people that aren't doing things the right way, these people that make me sick, and they post all sorts of dumb things on Facebook, why don't you take them out, Lord, with COVID-19? No, no, no. He said to God, God, I stand in the gap for these people. I pray for these people. God, I want you to use these people. I want these people to see you work in their lives. That's the kind of guy Moses was. And yet he's being accused here of seeking to make himself a prince over the people. Moreover, in verse 14, uh, they say to him, You have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So now they're accusing Moses again of not only lording himself over the people, but he's saying, you're trying to kill us now because we're speaking the truth about you. Now you want to put our eyes out. Moses had, of course, made no such threat. He had said no such thing. Moses was making this all about the Lord. It's the Lord who you're coming against. It's the Lord who you're rebelling against. And it says, notice here in, in, in verse 14 as well, Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor give us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Notice who they were counting on. Notice who it was that they had expected to give them those things. A man. A man. It's incredible that, you know, 1,500 years later when Jesus Christ would come on the scene and he would begin to teach... And at that point in time, even his own disciples, you've got to remember within the tradition uh, of the faith at that point in time, in the Jewish faith, even his own disciples were looking for an earthly king. Even his own disciples, even his own followers who believed and trusted in him were looking for something that Jesus was not there to be. Yes, Jesus is the king, and yes, someday Jesus is going to return and establish his throne from Jerusalem on the throne of David. Yes, Jesus Christ is going to rule all things, but Jesus Christ's first advent was not to establish some sort of earthly throne. Jesus Christ's mission, Jesus Christ's advent, the reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth was to die, as the prophets had said as the prophets had prophesied before, that he would be cut off, but not for himself, that by his stripes we would be, we, we would be healed, that he would be bruised and afflicted, that he would be crushed for our sins, the Bible says. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And even his own disciples were looking for hope in a man. We're looking for hope in a leader. My friends... If we spend our days, if we spend the time of our lives looking for some person to bring meaning, to bring hope, to bring truth, to bring fulfillment into our lives, we will always be left wanting. 
We will always be left wanting. There's no religious leader. There's no government leader. There's no king. There's no, cat, there's no system of government. There's no anything that is ever going to give a human being what they truly need. What a human being truly needs is exactly what we were created for by God, fellowship. God created you and God created me to have fellowship with him. He loves us. Why do you love your kids? You say this all the time. Why do you love your kids? Well, because they clean their room, because they're, they, they do this well, because they can really hit a ball or shoot a basket or, or ride their dirt bike or do whatever. The, that, no, no, no. You love your kids because they exist. You love your children because they exist and because they're yours. It doesn't matter if they're doing things always the right way or whether they're doing things the wrong way sometimes. You love them because they exist. And Jesus would say to the people, if you then, being evil, that is, being sinful, know how to give good gifts to your kids, huh, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask it of Him? The fulfillment that you're looking for, if it's outside of the Lord, if it's outside of Jesus Christ, if it's outside of a relationship with God, I promise you, I promise you, you'll be left wanting. It is amazing to me, as we go through this portion of Scripture, what people are able to convince themselves of. Watch this. God had been speaking through Moses since Korah and Dathan were in shackles in Egypt. He used Moses in bringing the plagues on Egypt. He used Moses to institute the Passover, leading the nation out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, giving them the law at Mount Sinai, water from the rock, manna from heaven, victory over the Amalekites who sought to wipe them off the face of the planet. In every great work that God had done, he had used Moses to proclaim it or to bring it forth. And these men are able to convince themselves that they have every bit as much of a right to lead, God, to lead God's people as Moses does. After all that they have seen with their own eyes, they are able to convince themselves that Moses can be made irrelevant or at least be brought down to their own level. They need to be exalted just as much as Moses is. Why? Why? How is it possible even that these men could have these thoughts. Well, here's what they missed. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about Moses or the ministry or the tabernacle or even the sacrifices. It's about God. It's about God. God chose Moses. God freed the people. God gave the law. God brought water from the rock. God parted the Red Sea. God brought the manna from heaven. And it was God who told them to enter into the promised land. It wasn't about Moses. It was never about Moses. It was always, always about God and what God had sought to accomplish and what God had chosen to do. Korah was a man who maybe had faith because he did believe in God, but he was not a man of faith. So all he sees is the people. He sees the people. He sees the power. He sees the influence. He sees the ministry. He sees the tabernacle. And when we become a people who see the stuff, Rather than looking to God, when we see the stuff, when we're looking outwardly, instead of looking upward, we begin to convince ourselves of things. And we can convince ourselves, amazingly, of just about anything. He thinks that because he and his friends feel a certain way, God needs to go along with it. 
And that is not the way it ever has worked with God. And it is not the way it works with God today. And it is never the way it will work with God. God will accomplish what he has stated in his word. If you worship him and follow him according to his word, he will be with you and he will bless you. But if you rebel against what his word says, my friends, he cannot bless that because he will not go against his word. It's very simple, and yet it's so difficult for us. Because the Bible says it of ourselves. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That is the natural, the natural way of a man. And when I say man, I mean mankind, men and women alike. It is our natural way to go to our own way, to do things our own way, to do or seek to do things in our own power, to accomplish things for ourselves, to make it about us. But being a child of God, all of that is supposed to change. It's about God's will. It's about God's plan. It's about His will being accomplished in this world and in our lives and through us bringing people to Him. Uh, <laughs> Interestingly enough, now I want to kind of uh, change, uh, change, change directions a little bit here, uh, and I want to start talking about the translation from this point in time all the way forward into the ministry of Jesus, as we're going to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday and the representations, uh, the representation of it here in the Scriptures. Religion in, in, in and of itself certainly is not a bad thing, but what happens is that when people start adding things to faith, when they start adding things to the Word of God, traditions and liturgies that God never commanded, that's when it becomes a problem. So that by the time Jesus had actually come on the scene, uh, the people of Israel were completely unable to see who he was. Now, fast forward uh, roughly a thousand years from this point in time that we're reading here in Numbers chapter 15. In the, Israel, in, in, the, in the nation of Israel and in their history, 40 years later, they do enter into the promised land. And you have the times of the judges followed by the times of the kings. And throughout this history of the children of Israel, of the Jewish people, they fall deeper and deeper and deeper into idolatry. All the very things that God commanded them not to do using Moses as a voice piece. All the things that he had commanded them, do not do. Seek after the things of me. Follow the things that I have commanded you to do. Stay true to me. Stay near to me. Don't go after other gods. Because that's the very reason that all these nations have been dispossessed and have had calamity in their nation. Because they've gone after other gods. Because they have rejected me as their king. Don't do that. And yet, the children of Israel, when they go into the promised land, it doesn't take too many generations where they become more and more steeped in idolatry. And God sends prophets to warn them. God sends prophets to tell them, you're going in the wrong direction. You're doing the very thing that God had told you not to do. And they take the prophets and they would stone the prophets. They would kill the prophets. Tradition tells us that the prophet Isaiah was put into a log and sawn in half because they did not want to hear the word of God, even though they knew it to be true. And they went after their idolatry until finally... God allows the entire nation of Israel to be taken captive into Babylon. The Babylonians come sweeping into the land, just as God had foretold through the prophets. And because of the unrepentance of his own children, the Babylonians come sweeping into the land. They sack Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, Solomon's temple. They destroy it all. And the people are taken captive into Babylon. Seventy years 
70 years are taken captive. And an amazing thing happens during that time. During that 70 years, and when they come back after 70 years into the land of Israel, into their own land, they are 100% completely cured of idolatry. (laughs) They no longer go after idols. They no longer are doing the things that their forefathers had done that got them taken into captivity. But something else happens. From the time they come back into the land and they build a new temple and they begin to worship God there and study the Torah and the law again and they begin to become completely given over to the faith system that God had given them, something else happens that's even worse than before with the idolatry that they were committing is they begin to put all of their faith into the religion. They begin to put all of their hope uh, that they had a relationship with God and that they were going to be with God and that they were children of God based on the system, based on the religion. Over the next 400 years before Jesus Christ comes, they become so steeped in tradition and liturgy that God never commanded that when Jesus Christ comes on the scene teaching the Word of God exactly as, his, as it had been intended, teaching the law, teaching the prophets exactly as God had it intended, they reject Him. They reject Him completely. Jesus would say this to the religious leaders in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 38 to 40, But you do not have God's Word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And the culmination of this happens, no, you guessed it, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Now, we think about Palm Sunday, we think about, yes, Jesus riding on a donkey for some reason, and he comes into Jerusalem, and for some reason, people decide to lay palm branches in front of him and start singing Hosanna, and, and, and it's Palm Sunday. And then not too long after that, he gets crucified, and of course, that's how, then we have Easter. There was so much more going on on Palm Sunday than just that. Uh, I want to turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 19, and, and this is the account of Palm Sunday. Uh, Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 35, then they brought him, that is this colt, this, this donkey, to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many people spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the messianic cry. That is the messianic psalm that was only to be sung to the Messiah. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, Watch what happens. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why did they say that? Because they knew exactly what they were saying. They were proclaiming that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel, that he was the promised one, promised through the scriptures, promised through the prophets. That's exactly who he was. And they were saying that, and the Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these religious leaders, they knew it. And so they said, rebuke your disciples. Notice what Jesus says in verse 40. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, 
that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, let's move past that to verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. This is after the triumphal entry. This is after the palm branches. This is after the hosannas are sung. He draws near to the city, and we have this scene, Jesus now weeping over Jerusalem. In verse 42, it says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, 70 years after the death of Jesus Christ, Titus, the Roman leader, would in fact come into Jerusalem. He would burn the city. He would destroy the temple. He would burn the temple. He would tip every stone off of the other. And he would sack the city, and the people were driven from the city of Jerusalem, uh, out really scattered into all the nations, uh, really until June 14, 1948, uh, when the Lord brought them back to their land. But why did Jesus hold them accountable to know that this was their day? As Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he makes this statement, he says, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus expected that they would know that this was the day that he was to, that he was to uh, present himself as the Messiah. He expected of them, he expected of them that they would have known that in this, this was their day that Jesus was to present himself. Why is that? Uh, in the Old Testament, now this is the, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, this was written during that Babylonian captivity that we briefly mentioned. The 70-year Babylonian captivity that the children of Israel found themselves in, um, during that time, uh, the prophet Daniel uh, wrote this. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, uh, Daniel has this visitation from the archangel, and, and, and this is the message that he receives. Know therefore... And understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. This includes a mathematical prophecy. What the, what the, what the, what the angel was saying to, to Daniel here was he was telling him exactly when the Messiah was going to appear. When he says that, that, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore, two weeks. Now, these are weeks of years. These are weeks of years, or 69 altogether when you added up 69 weeks of years, seven-year periods, okay? So 69 seven-year periods. And there's a mathematical prophecy here. The Jewish and the Babylonian calendars used a 360-day year. 69 weeks of 360-day years, bear with me, guys, totals 173,880 days. That is very specific. 173,880 days. In effect, Gabriel told Daniel that the interval between the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah as king 
would be 173,880 days. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. The commandment to restore and build Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes Longanimus on March 14th, 445 B.C., okay? 445 years before Jesus Christ was born and after this prophecy had been written by Daniel to the day of when Messiah would appear, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes Longanimus gives this order, this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The emphasis in the verse on the street and the wall was to avoid confusion with other early mandates confined to rebuilding the temple. What that means is, before this order, this decree went out by Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild the city, Jerusalem, with its walls and with its streets, there had, orders, had, there had been orders given that they were allowed to go back and rebuild the temple. They were allowed to rebuild the temple, the place of worship, but not the city. This is a very specific decree that Daniel had prophesied. It actually says, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. So this decree went forth 445 B.C. During the ministry of Jesus Christ, if you recall, there were several occasions in which the people attempted to promote him as king, but every time he carefully avoided it. And he would say to them, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Then, all of a sudden, one day, he miraculously arranges it. On this particular day, he rode into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, deliberately, deliberately fulfilling a prophecy of Zechariah that the Messiah would present himself as king in just that way. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey, upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. Whenever we might easily miss the significance of what was going on, the Pharisees come to our rescue, right? (laughs) And so the Pharisees, when this overzealous crowd is crying out, Hosanna, and they're proclaiming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees got upset about it because they knew exactly what they were saying. But Jesus endorses it when he says to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the very stones would immediately cry out. This is the only occasion, this is the only time that Jesus presented himself as king. This was on Palm Sunday, and the date is April 6th, 32 A.D. So what's the point? Exactly this. When we examine the period between March 14th, 445 B.C., when the the command and the decree was given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... 445 B.C., March 14th, until April 6th, 32 A.D., and you correct for leap years as well. You take everything into consideration. You discover that it is 173,880 days exactly to the very day. To the very day. So Daniel the prophet had actually come out with this wild prophecy in which Gabriel told him the exact day. This is how many days. And he gives this decree. Here's the decree. It's going to go forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. From that day, 
You can count forward, Daniel. You can count forward 173,880 days, taking into account leap years and everything else. And on that day, the Messiah will come. And on that day, 32 AD, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people said, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus held them accountable to have known what the Word of God said about his coming. How does this tie into Korah from Numbers chapter 16? And Dad's going to cover this in the second verse, in this, excuse me, in the second, second service this morning, when God deals with Korah and this band of rebels, that they were held accountable, not to Moses, not even to the ministry, but they were held accountable to have known what the Word of God said, and to obey it. To know what the Word of God said and to obey it. And Jesus Christ, in the exact same way, on Palm Sunday, He expected and He held the religious people accountable that they should have known what the Word of God says. And all this time that we're living in, and people are asking, are we heading into the last days? Are we, are, we, are, we, are we heading into the tribulation? Is Jesus Christ coming again shortly? Is Jesus Christ coming? Well, I, yes, I believe he is coming shortly. I believe the time is short. I do believe his return is near. But in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and then into the writings of the apostles, we are never given a day. In fact, we're told no one can know the day or the hour. The Bible says not even the Son knows the time of His return, but only the Father which is in heaven. But here's what we are given, saints. We are given a list and a series of things to watch for, to look for. The most important thing being that, that, the, uh, that the Jewish people would be brought back into their own land and reestablished as a nation, which happened in 1948. That is the greatest prophecy that we've seen happen. But then all of the other signs that we've seen, wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places and all these and people say, well, that could happen anytime, anywhere. Jesus gave us, the Word of God has given us a specific group of things to be looking at and to be expecting His imminent return. That's where, that's where we come into this, guys. Where do we fall into this equation? We're talking about Korah. We're talking about the Pharisees who didn't believe in Jesus. So where do we fall into this equation? Jesus Christ said that we should watch and we should be waiting for his return. And that in the meantime, as we watch, as we wait, and we see these signs taking place, Jesus said, no, when you see these things taking place, it's coming, it's coming. What is our job? To focus on the things of him. To not be dismayed. To not get thrown off course but instead to remember what Jesus has promised us, to know what the Word of God says and now not allow ourselves to be thrown off course or be deceived by false teachings or false teachers who would tell us that there's some other way and the things that the Bible has said are not going to come to pass, that we would discard all of that and remain faithful to the Word of God. The same thing that he had expected that Korah would do, and the same thing that he had expected that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would do in Jesus' day, friends, he expects us to do the same exact thing. Be obedient to the word. Stay focused on the things of God. Do what he's called you to do. Study this book. Know this book. Understand this book. There's so many ways. There's so many materials. There's so, I always joke around and say that the technology that we have today between Google and what's just available to us online, there's no excuse for anyone not to be a Bible scholar. It is all out there. It is all out there. If you want to know more about this, call us, email us, 
Get a hold of us. We would be so privileged to help you dive into the things of God and to know more about the Word of God. So use us as a resource, uh, we would ask of you. Okay, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we ask and pray, Lord, that you would implant these truths of your Word, Lord, in our hearts, and you would help us to be uh, people of faith, Lord, not just people who have faith, but people of faith who live their lives according to our faith, Lord, and our, and our belief and our trust in you and in what your word says, Lord. We pray that you would use us in these, in these difficult days, Lord, to be a light, uh, to be uh, helpful to people, Lord, um, to be examples of what is right uh, and how we ought to conduct our lives, Lord, uh, here on earth, but also where our hearts ought to be, Father. We pray that you would be glorified in everything that we do during this time, Lord, and that people uh, would become <laughs> cognizant of the fact that they need a relationship with you, that there's something missing. If, if we're so afraid and, and if we're so without hope because of what's happening right now in our country, something's missing. Lord, and we pray that they would find that hope in Jesus Christ, your Son, that you would use those of us who know, know him, Lord, uh, to lead as many as would follow, Lord, into that relationship. We pray that you would be glorified today, and we pray that you would bless our pastor, Lord, uh, in the second service as well, and the words that he has to speak to us and to teach us this morning, Lord, and we're so grateful and thankful that you sent Jesus, Lord. We're so grateful and thankful for that day that he came riding into Jerusalem and presented himself as the king. And we ask, Father, that he would reign as king in our hearts, not just today, not just this morning, but every day, here to the last day, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody.